and they want to help everybody that needs help as you process all of this that you've got to walk through. I think, for example, of one of the men in our church and his wife, Peggy, Dennis and Peggy Melton, who sent me an email this week that touched, touched me so profoundly that I cried. <laughs> At times, I'm a crybaby. At other times, I wonder, do I even have a heart in here, you know? (laughs) This was one of those times when it touched me so deeply. He wrote, Pastor, we lost everything except our faith in God. Dennis and Peggy are in charge of a deliverance ministry here. They help people that have gone through issues, addictions, and so forth. Once the water receded, he said, we brought our small RV from Palestine to a shocking sight. The debris from the flood was everywhere. We were so overwhelmed, Peggy and I held each other and cried. We had a monumental undertaking in front of us. We kept our faith held on to God by that scarlet thread and prayed for peace and God's intervention. He said, I, we exited my truck and began to work. He said, it was disheartening because only my two daughters-in-law showed up that evening. The next morning... I didn't know where to start, and I was grief-stricken. As I began to work, I turned around, and I saw Pastor Tony Burge, our men's pastor, sitting right here on the front row from our church, and then six strong men and several teenagers. Then an older man from CT who was a contractor and his five teenage boys. I'm not even sure who that is, but if you're in this service, I want you to know you have no idea how much you have impacted me by serving our community the way you have. He said, Pastor, after that, our closest friends from CT and family showed up with food, ice water, and so many supplies. Then Pastor Tony ministered to all of us. He said, we were crying. And by this point in the email, I was too. They stripped my house in three hours. It was amazing. The next day, around 15 different people showed up from CT along with most of my family and finished everything. They even leveled and hooked up our RV. At the end of the day, we were thunderstruck to see the FEMA man drive up to our house. He totaled our house and gave us the maximum. And then Dennis writes, I'm so overwhelmed with our church. I cry every time I think about it or write about it. I can't even tell anyone about it because I'm such a mess right now. All I can say is that we have a church that is very similar to the biblical church of Acts. I absolutely love our church, the people, and of course you and all of our awesome pastors. And he closes by just saying, wow. Oh, you touch me. Amen. Amen. And we need a strategy. As a church, a church has to have a strategy to touch its community. I think it's so sad that so many churches have become isolated from the community that they are in. And I hear about all the problems all over the United States, and I've said it before. Dennis, is that you and Peggy back there? And there you are. Stand up, because that's who, just, who wrote that email. Would you just point your hand toward them and say, God bless you. Amen. Amen. We love you guys so much. But a church needs a strategy because it has become disengaged from society. So much so that many people feel a church has no practical value to add to the world they live in. And you have to have a strategy, right? A young boy entered a barber shop and the barber whispered to his customer, I don't mean to make fun of this kid because I actually feel sorry for him. But said, that's got to be the dumbest boy in the world. Watch it, I'm going to prove it to you. And he put in his hand a $10 bill in his right hand and in his left hand he put two ones. 
And then he calls the boy over and says, which one do you want, son, the ten or the two ones? And the boy took the two ones, and he left. And the barber said to his client, he said, what did I tell you? Shook his head, said, that kid never learns. Later, when the customer was leaving, he saw the young boy, same one, coming out of the ice cream store right next door. And he said, hey, son, may I ask you a question? Why did you take the two ones instead of the $10 bill? And the boy licked his ice cream cone and grinned and said, because the day I take the $10, the game is over. Amen. (laughs) Doesn't sound so dumb to me. (laughs) Sounds like he's smarter than the barber, in fact. You have to have a strategy. And speaking of strategies, I'm going to wait until I near the end of my message today to even tell you what my title is. As you know, I spend my weeks, I'm here on weekends serving the church that God has called me to serve that I love, and you're my family. I have an incredible staff, Pastor Irvin Clark and Pastor Tony, and everybody has been out. Pastor Donnie, I I start calling names now, and I've already gotten in trouble, because you have all served so well, just incredible And we have a young man that is driving all of the way from Baytown on a bicycle, 26 miles one way, riding on a bicycle to be out there serving. His name is Rigo. He's given himself to this church for the whole month to serve. It was unbelievable. A young man that had moved away, that had attended the church some time ago, just moved back the week before the flood. Somebody saw him walking down Wallaceville with two cases of water, one on each shoulder, Somebody from the church and stopped and asked if they could give him a ride. And he said, yeah. And he got in. Turns out he was delivering the water here. He's been here day in, day out. Those are just two little stories. His name is Enoch. And just, just the way our people have responded, you have blown my mind. Blown my mind. You've been Incredible. I tell people about you and will tell people about you wherever I go. The great joy of my life is to be here serving this church. During the week, I have for many years, as you know, been off traveling, trying to empower frontline leaders and teaching in conferences. And believe it or not, I guess I've fooled a few people along the way. Because people come up to me all the time in conferences and they say, can you help us? I say, what do you mean? Glad to help if I can. Well, I've been serving the Lord 50 years now. Can you believe it? Married 50 years. Been in ministry 48 years full time. I've learned a few things, I guess, and people think I maybe know more than I do. So they ask me, help us shorten the learning curve. What can you share with us that will help us leapfrog ahead instead of having to spend decades learning? What you've learned, can you pass that on to us? And over the years, I've formulated five things that I share with people in conferences when they ask this question. I'll even teach sessions about it. And today, I want to share those here with you. Because they not only help you in terms of your relationship with with people and with life and, and having a successful ministry, But these are not just principles that help ministry. They're they're principles that help you fulfill and maximize your own personal life. Not only that, they will help you get through a storm. 
I've been through a few storms. I mentioned last Sunday, I've been through, that was my eighth hurricane. And I've been through one typhoon. We have one of our members, he attends a 730 service. He's from the Philippines. And he and I talked for a few moments. They've been through some typhoons out there. And that's scary on these islands. I was on an island about 600 miles east of him in the Philippines and went through a typhoon one time. I've been through some storms. But you know what was worse than those storms? I've been through some other storms that were not physical. They were spiritual. And man, did the winds howl and the thunder and lightning come. I've been through some storms. These principles have helped guide me in the storms of life, and I want to share them with you this morning. But I'm going to wait until I get near the end of the message to even tell you the title. So when I share these five principles, these are what they are. They've benefited me. I hope that they will help you and shorten your learning curve. The first thing that I tell people who ask, what can I do to advance my position in the kingdom of God or my relationship with God or survive the inevitable storms that come in a broken world? This is what I say first. Get as much of the word of God as you can and hide it in your heart. I'm not going to talk to you about prayer because if I'm going to tell you to pray at this level, at this stage of your life, you're not ready for anything else I have to say. If you're not already praying as a believer and you've been in the church for a while, I, I don't know how to, to shorten the curve for you. So I hope that you're praying. And I'm not going to talk to you about worship either. I hope you understand the need for that. I'm not even going to talk to you about the law of sowing and reaping or any of these things. Because if at this stage of life, if you haven't learned these things, then probably what I have to say is going to just go flying right over your head. So let me speak to you as though you're mature believers and that you don't need the milk of the word you're ready for meat right now. Is that okay? The first thing, as I said, I would tell you is get as much of the word of God in your heart as you possibly can. When you have the word of God within your heart, it gives God something to bring to mind and activate as you go through the various situations and stages of your life. You see, when you read the Bible... It's, there's no guarantee that at that moment or within the next day or week or month or even year that what you have just read is going to serve you in any kind of capacity. You're reading the Word of God. You might not even see a practical application for it at that time. But as you hide the Word of God in your heart, the God who sees the future as though it is the unfolding present, that God calls to the surface that word that you have put in your heart and illuminates the word at the moment that you need it. Amen. And I want you to know things in this world may change, but the word of God will never change. It is forever settled in heaven and in earth. It is the foundational premise upon which everything else in life is built. And you get the foundation right, you can restructure everything else. God causes those scriptures to come to mind, deep calls to deep. And from the deep within you, the God causes to rise to the surface the scriptures that are hidden within. And you, like the disciple, on two disciples on the road to Emmaus, who had just experienced the crucifixion of their Lord, and the body has now disappeared, and some are saying that Jesus was resurrected. They had hid scripture in their hearts that they did not know would someday at this moment, come to the surface and be of benefit to them. 
And joining them was this third man who was disguised from them that they did not recognize, though he was actually their Lord. You see, he showed up in a different form. And God knows how to show up in different forms in our lives. And sometimes he can show up and you not even know it's God. God can speak in a still small voice or God can speak in the middle of a howling hurricane. Amen. Always be looking for God in every situation. And as he began to expound the word of God to them, these scriptures they had learned from when they were small came to their surface, came to the surface. And you know what? They looked at one another and said, our hearts are burning within us. God takes the scripture you have hidden in your heart And he brings it to the surface. I don't even know how many storms in life that I have encountered. And at the time that I studied the word of God, it didn't have any meaning. But I've studied it long enough now and read it through enough times. But you know what happens? No matter what the enemy does, because he doesn't have really that big a bag of tricks. No matter what he does, every time something happens, a scripture will rise to the surface. And God will illuminate that for me. And I laugh at the devil and say, too late, too late, too late. I got the word in my heart now. You can't deceive me. You're not going to be able to use this situation against me. Secondly, I tell people, stay in the place and the assignment where God has positioned you. There will be a thousand different reasons to make you feel like leaving the place where God has positioned you or the assignment that he has given you. You you need to know that. People will pull you here. They will pull you there. Circumstances will. It will be rain at one season, winter in another, and you may feel like I need to move, uh, relocate in my assignment because this one is not doing so good. The U.S. military, Special Forces, has a statement that has long intrigued me. They say, slow is fast, but fast is slow. We always want to see everything explode, but sometimes what happens is there's an accumulative effect, and in the middle of the winter, the middle of a dark season, God is actually working things for your good. But in the middle of these trials and storms that we face, you know what happens? You'll get in conflict with people. You'll get in conflict with others. The enemy will plant thoughts in your mind. You will wonder if you're being successful. You will wonder if this is the right place for me to serve and you've been there for so long and been so faithful but you're not seeing the fruit that you need to see and the enemy will say tell you what I think it's time you move on and you know what he comes transformed as an angel of light and so it sounds like the voice of God at the time that it occurs but you should remember this always that where he has placed you is where he has given you your spiritual metron that is your realm of authority and it is only there that you can thrive and prosper you say but you know I, I think I can do well elsewhere out of my assignment I will never forget when we were about to build the family life center I'd never been on the back of a bulldozer in my life But one of our men rented one and taught me how to operate it. And so we were trying to do as much of the work as we could. And I got on that thing and I was like a boy that had just been turned loose in a candy shop. Amen. Because all you guys, oh, come on, now be be honest. You've always wanted to operate a dozer. And many of you ladies have also. I am good at wrecking stuff now, I'm telling you. 
I, I, I can wreck stuff. We had, I think it was 248 trees, mature trees that we had to knock down back there. And I learned how to tilt that blade and cut around the roots and knock those trees over. And that's where our family life center is now built in that parking area out there. But you know what I saw? Because that was in the spring. We had come through the winter and the sap that was stored in the ground was coming back up through the, the trunk of the tree into the branches and into the leaves. And um, you know what I observed? I, there was one tree we knocked down and that was just right over here. We had too many trees in this little park area right there. And I knocked one of those trees down and so help me. If lying on the ground disconnected from the soil, that sap that had come from the, the root system continued to flow because it was just doing what God created it to do. And it went out into those branches. And you know what happened? While it was lying on its side, disconnected from its source, it grew buds and leaves and flowers. It didn't even know it was dead yet. But it got disconnected from where it had been placed. I'm preaching better than you're responding right now. Never allow the enemy to disconnect you. You say, Pastor, you're, you, it's easy for you to say, you don't know what I've gone through. Hey, let me tell you something. Look, I've been through it also. There have been times I've been tempted to leave this church. Never told you that. Talked about? Oh, yeah. People have said things about me that I've wondered how they developed such a brilliant imagination. Amen. I'm serious. They need to go to work for Disney or somebody because they had... It would be amazing if they put that to work in computer technology or software, they would be the next Bill Gates. I'd love to see them master that for the kingdom of God. My flight on some occasions did not get to go out and I had to leave out a day late. People saw me and I've heard rumors. People have said, you know, pastor th says he's gone all week. I saw him in town. Amen. I had to come in early for a doctor's appointment. You know, pastor was here. He claims he comes in on Saturday. I saw him here Friday. I, you know, I think he's just taking it easy. Go to pray for somebody. Pastor went over to that house. I wonder what's going on. Nowadays, I've learned, listen, I'm serious. You call me to pray for you, I'll park in the driveway and I'll stick my hand out the window and say, in Jesus' name, amen. I've learned some things in ministry. Yes, I have. When Aaron got ready to leave this earth, you know what he did? He took off his robes. Moses called Aaron and Eliezer, Aaron's son, to the top of Mount Nebo. And Hebrew scholars tell a beautiful story about what happened that we don't read in our Bible. What you need to know is they have all these historical writings that supplement the Bible. By, and these writings were written by rabbis who lived during those days, those times. They were part of the tribe of Levi. And they wrote things, and that has been preserved in both the oral tradition of the Jews and, and also in the Talmud and the Mishnah and some of the other writings. But this is what they say, that when they got to the top of the mountain, that a cave opened before the three of them, Moses, Eliezer, and Aaron. Inside was a bed and a burning lamp that illuminated the interior of the cave. The burning lamp, the symbolism is very clear. Because in a number of places, the scripture refers to the spirit of Christ as a burning lamp. The spirit of God. And it represents the manifest presence of God. 
The bed represents a place of rest. Watch it now. Moses instructed Aaron to take off his robes and lie down on the bed. And when he did, Hebrew scholars say the Spirit of God kissed him as a sign of God's love and regard for him. And he went to sleep and died. Notice what happened. Took his robes off, laid down to rest, and he died. I could spend some time on that right there. This is in essence what happened to Elijah. For Elijah goes from his greatest mountain peak victory on Mount Carmel to feeling there's nothing more for me to do. I'm tired of fighting. And he says, Lord, why am I here? Because there's, I'm the only one left. And God says, you're feeling sorry for yourself. I've got 7,000 that have never bowed and need a bail. But he said, I'll honor your request. And there's some request you never want God to honor. And so you know what God did? God prepared Elisha, and Elijah was sent to find Elisha to replace him prematurely. Don't allow your assignment to be replaced or your stay, your position of authority to be taken away prematurely. Amen. The robes are your symbol of service. You could look at Aaron and know by these robes That's the high priest. And so what he was doing was he was also not only laying aside his place of service, he was laying aside his metron because soaked into these robes were the oil of his anointing. When they was anointed, Psalms 133 ran down his beard to the skirts of his garments. When they removed his robes, they took away his anointing. The yoke is broken because of the anointing he gave up his spiritual authority well somebody in the building ought to say amen don't lay your assignment down don't ever be talked into that don't ever let the enemy move you out of place because even when you're lying on the ground you may still feel like your budding and flowers are bursting forth but it isn't long until that dries up as you look back and see I became disconnected from the place God assigned me. You say, Pastor, why are you talking like that? Like I said, I've had temptations to go to other churches, been through struggles, and it's, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence. Always does. And you know what? I've prayed about situations and God said, you stay where I have put you. And my flesh is telling me one thing. Even my friends are telling me another. Oh, you need to go over here, great opportunity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and head up this ministry program. The salary is incredible, all of that. You know, you listen to this, and then there's the little voice of God that says, you want to listen to your flesh or your friends, or do you want to listen to me? Because you may not get the biggest salary in the world and it might not always be the easiest where I place you. But I promise you, if you stay where you're at, you'll do the most good with your life. Amen. And so there are messages that come at us constantly. Let me spend a moment longer on this. Television is bombarding you with information. Messages that are negative. And all of these things are taking place and you're constantly being impacted with information. So what you need to know is the third principle is I tell people spend the rest of your life changing the programming that you were given in this fallen world 
Because in this fallen world, you were not only programmed with good things like math. If you're an engineer, you, you can't do engineering without math. If you're a musician, somebody taught you how to play and taught you the difference in an E flat or an A sharp or whatever. You know, you've got to learn. They taught you the difference in Phrygian scales or Mixolydian scales. You've got to learn the difference here to be able to survive in your respective field in this world. But you see, they didn't only teach you about gravity and science and music. They also taught you principles that cause loss in the course of your life because the world is a fallen world. And I would advise you, spend the rest of your life reprogramming yourself because every day 10,000 different messages come flying at you some from the television some from the circle of acquaintances that are your friends some from your co-workers some from even people in the church amen I need a better amen I wish there was no gossip that went on in church did I ever tell you about the old preacher that preached the camp meeting right here in Texas? He pastored in Orange, Texas. I knew him. My uncle attended his church. He said he was preaching a camp meeting, and a lady walked up to him and said, Pastor, I want you to pray for me that God will help lay my tongue, help me lay my tongue on the altar. He looked around that tabernacle that seated over 10,000 people, and he said, Sister, there's not a big enough altar in this church for you to lay your tongue on. I don't mean that unkindly. I'm just telling a story. I'm your friend. I'm your pastor. I love you. I would not hurt you for any amount of money in the world. Amen. Just telling you a story. You hear things that comes at you from the radio. And you know the way we think? We think in terms of thought pictures. So they have said a million cars were destroyed in this flood in Houston. A million. If I use the word car... How many of you actually think of the letter C-A-R instead of seeing a picture of a car? Okay, nobody? How many of you, when I say car, you see a picture of a car in your mind? Everybody, it's probably the one you have, amen. Or the one you want, or the one your neighbor just bought that you're jealous of, amen. And that's probably what it is. If I say fish, do you see the letters F-I-S-H? No. How many of you saw that video on YouTube of this guy right here in Houston that in his house caught a fish? <laughs> I'm not laughing at his misfortune, but some wag commented below that. They said, it's wonderful when the food comes to you. Amen. <laughs> caught a fish swimming in his house that was flooded. You don't think of the letters F-I-S-H. You see a fish, a picture, because your mind thinks in terms of thought pictures, and you're constantly being bombarded. How many of you have ever heard of the musician Bruno Mars? Anybody? Come on, be honest now. We're in church. God's going to send you to hell if you lie. Come on. <laughs> Somebody tell me some of the names of his songs. I'm going to say how spiritual you are. That's what I like. Oh, my God, have mercy. In church, no less. Let me stop that right now and just tell you the name of a song. I don't know where this may go. Amen. Anybody ever hear the song Grenade? Take, 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 take it all, but you never give. I was listening to that, and they were playing it on a loop over and over in a place I was in in Africa. 
And the next thing you know, I'm thinking about my wife I've been married to 50 years. If my body was on fire, you'd watch it burn. I'm thinking, what kind of woman am I got in my house? And I got the best wife in the world. What I'm saying is the world is constantly programming your subconscious, which is what the Bible calls your heart. My wife has been incredibly faithful and a great woman during all of these years, but you do become affected. Amen. And what you need to do is every day discipline yourself to reprogram your mind with the principles of the Bible, Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brethren, whatever, whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, good report, if there's any virtue or anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Amen. I move on because I have to close. And I'll just say this. Why is it so important? to guard the programming of your mind and to systematically and regularly go about reprogramming your mind. Proverbs 4, 23, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. You would guard your treasure, but you need to leave this heart with a better guard at the front door than guard your CDs, amen your certificates of deposit, your 401k. Yeah, and the way the word of God reprograms you, and I gotta say this as I move on, it first confronts your present belief systems. If you're never confronted, you never change. Never hold on to thoughts so tightly that you do not allow God's word to challenge them. The fourth thing is always focus on God's promise. Amen. You're listening of what he will do as well as what he is doing and not on what he has not done. You want to know what to get you in trouble? Focusing on what God hasn't done. Remember John the Baptist? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Jesus come down and says, baptize me. And John said, Lord, I have need of being baptized of you. This is the same John that six months later, after languishing in prison for almost six months, sends two disciples to Jesus and said, are you the one we're supposed to look for? Or should we look for another? Did you get that? The same John that is the first to say, behold the Lamb of God, this is the guy right here, is now saying, are you the right one? You know why? There's a one letter, there's a one word reason for why John is questioning whether this is the one. You know what that one word is? Prison. He's been in jail now. His life is threatened. And you know what Jesus did? Jesus did not focus on John and his request to show him what he had not fulfilled in his life and cause it to be accomplished at that moment. What John is saying is, Lord, you didn't, you didn't deliver me. You know, what John is saying is I'm focused on what you didn't do. I'm in prison. Are you the one? You could have waved your hand. You could have broken open prison doors. You could have done so many things. And so the disciples come to Jesus, and this is what Jesus tells them. 
It seems cold. It really seems heartless when Jesus says, just go tell John the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and the poor had the gospel preached unto them. Wow, does that seem cold? He doesn't even refer to John's situation. In pastoring 101, you got to refer to the present situation. If you don't, they don't think you care. People will think you're hard-hearted. But not once did Jesus refer to John's present situation. Instead, he takes John's face and says, don't look at what I haven't done. Look at what I'm doing right now. And he finishes by saying, verse 6, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Because when you start looking at what God hasn't done, you get offended. Why didn't God spare me? Why didn't I get healed? Everybody else is rejoicing. They didn't go through the things I went through. And you know what God's telling you this morning? Look, take your face and focus it on what I'm doing, not on what I haven't done. Because you will end up being offended. And as a pastor, I've watched that through the years. People want to know why God didn't help their marriage. Why God didn't give them a raise. And they say things like, I've been faithful and I've served the church and I've been faithful in my giving and my tithe and, and I've prayed and I've lived for God and look where I'm at. God, why didn't you help me? And it's always, why didn't you fix something? You know, you're focusing on what God seemed to have failed to do. And then when you look over the fence and see what he's doing for others, it really makes you feel bad. And you know what Jesus did with John? He took his face, knowing that he was getting ready to be beheaded. He said, you can't go like this, John. Let me focus you where you need to be looking. And he focused on what he was doing and what he would do. Oh, my, my, my. I could spend a whole series on that one point right there. You know why? Because there have been times in the course of my life when I felt like complaining about what God didn't do. Why did God, you allow me to go through these accidents? Why didn't you spare me? Why did I have to go through all of this? You could have sent an angel and you could have redirected that car and all kind of other things. And I hear people that were healed of cancer and, and I'm tempted to ask, Lord, why did I have a, a bout with it at one time? Why was I born with a genetic anomaly in my heart? Why didn't you come down and fix it for me? Why? Why? And I focus on what God didn't do. And the, I hear the Spirit of the Lord whisper, if you stay looking there, you will end up becoming offended. What you got to do is look at how good I am and look at how great I, of a God that I am. Hallelujah. Oh, I'm talking to somebody right now. How great is our God. Sing with me, how great is our God. Amen. Amen. Through it all. Through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. and I've learned to trust in God. Hear what I'm saying. If I never had a problem, I'd never know that God could solve them. Through 
through it all. So the first thing you do is get as much of the word of God in your heart as you can. Because God will cause it to come to the surface at the time you need it most. And then the second thing that you do is don't let the enemy or circumstances or even good friends talk you out of your place of assignment. And third, spend the rest of your life reprogramming your thinking from these fallen concepts. And fourthly, don't focus on what he didn't do. Focus on what he is doing. And I close with this, and this is actually the most important of the five. And with this, I'll pick up again as we come back. The fifth thing I would share with you, if you want to benefit from the years I've spent in ministry and weathering storms, is to encourage you and even urge you to consistently practice the awareness of the presence of God. It is now that I read our text, Acts chapter 2 and 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and in sharing in meals. And then in parentheses, it said, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. They actually had communion in homes. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Practicing the presence and awareness of the presence of God is one of the most significant and important things that I could ever, ever teach you to do. Have you ever noticed, for example, what communion really means? Communion really means fellowship, only this time it's not on a horizontal level. And I will say that in this crisis, it has been amazing the way the members of this church have connected with one another. You've been out there volunteering, helping, working in homes, working on the property, going through your neighborhoods, and so forth. You've connected with people that you only saw across the building. And what that has done is it has built community. And you'll never be the same after this ever again. Because you now have people that pray for you that maybe didn't even know you before. And you're praying for them. You have people that care about you. People you've walked through a crisis with. And you know what that has done? It has made you stronger because you have somebody to shoulder the burdens of life with you now that wasn't there. You had others, but now you've added to that. Communion, though, is not the horizontal level of fellowship. It's the vertical level. It's fellowship and connection with God. Have you ever noticed that when you take communion, as you know, you are literally taking the body and blood of Christ into you? Have you ever noticed what that means symbolically? Science tells us that what you eat and drink becomes a part of you. My hands move because of the meal that I ate yesterday. My feet can walk, my legs respond, my brain can think. Cognition occurs, thought processes. All of this takes place because I'm taking sustenance into my body that is converted into what my body needs to function at maximum ability. Amen. My faculties work without resources of nourishment. None of that occurs. And so when you eat a meal, science says that literally becomes a part of you. It is converted into energy. But the spiritual application is incredible. Jesus said, take and eat. This is my body that is broken. Take and drink. This is my blood that is shed for you. 
And we're literally taking into us the person of Jesus Christ that makes his way out into our hands and our feet and our mind and our thoughts. I have him coursing through my body. Amen. The very life of Christ is inside of me. And it's incredibly impacting because communion is a way of making us aware that this is what is taking place. And what did Jesus say? He said, when you have communion, what were his words? When you do this as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Why was he concerned that we might not remember? It's because we can get our mind on other things. And why was he wanting us to remember and stay focused on him as often as we do this? It's because apparently there were incredible benefits that are connected with you keeping in your mind an awareness of Christ. And have you noticed at communion time, have you noticed how, how close he seems to draw? When you take the time to examine your heart and you ask Christ to reign in your life over things that you know you're dealing with and you stand there and say, Lord, Lord, I'm not doing everything I want to do and I'd like some things to be broken off. Forgive me and make me stronger because I love you. Have you noticed that as you focus and prepare your heart, how close he seems to draw? May we never do communion so often that it is just a ritual we observe. May there always be life in it. When you do it in your home, take the time to make it meaningful. Amen. And as you focus on him, he becomes so real. This is because we're thinking about him. And watch this, and I'm closing. Or have you noticed that when worship is really powerful and intimate, you sense his presence more than you do at other times? It's in your face. There are times I come here, and I'm going to tell you, being in churches all over the world, when I come home, the worship always blows me away. I'm in places that don't know how to worship like this. And I come in and I'm impacted. You know, we can be in this so much that we actually become jaded to it. Jaded to it. And like Uzzah, who because the ark was in his house three months, we reach out to steady it, which was prohibited by Mosaic law. Don't touch the ark. Can't do that. And what we end up doing is we become jaded to the presence of God. But for me, I'll just tell you my experience. I come here and it's in my face. I mean, I breathe and it's... And the presence of God is here and, and I can feel it in my heart, the fire of God burning as we all begin to worship God. And you know, right then I feel the Lord close. But do you know that scripturally and theologically he's no more close at that moment or when I'm taking communion than when I am just going about other things and do not even sense him nearby. Because positionally he is omnipotent which means he's everywhere at the same time. And there is nowhere he is not. Come on, help me out now. There's no place you can go where the presence of God is not. He is always near and close at hand. But Jesus said, do this and remember me. I want you to be aware of me. I want you to, I want you to think about me because I don't want to just be there, the silent person beside you. I go to conferences and we have services from in the morning till late at night. 
prayer meeting early in the morning, shortly after dawn. Services all day, worshiping all day, hearing the word all day. I'll see people healed. In foreign countries, this is not uh, an unusual phenomenon. A deaf ear be open. I've been in meetings before where deaf ears were unstopped. People that had been bent over like the woman in the Bible could not straighten up, just suddenly miraculously straighten up. Cancers were healed. Amen. Blind eyes open. It just happens in that context. And one reason it does, you say, why? It's because they stay in the presence of God so long that they become continually aware of him. And what we do is we come visit God on Sunday. Like we would go visit an elderly grandmom in the nursing home or the old, hello, I'm talking to you, the old folks home. And we have not learned to practice the presence of God every day. But when you are aware that he is there constantly, I mean, he's always there. I didn't know how to do that when I was younger, but I'm going to teach you how. Over the next several weeks, I have learned. I wake up in the morning, and you know what? He's the first thought in my mind. Good morning, Jesus. And, and no matter what I'm doing, he's right here beside me. And I know that realistically he's in me, but do you understand the inadequacies of the human language to convey concepts such as I'm attempting to describe you can't, you can't very well flesh out these kind of themes or thoughts or ideas or principles. But I, I constantly know that he's right there. There is never a moment of my life when I am not aware that he's there. And this is the way it developed. Irvin, just come with me if you would. And I want you to walk with me. Pastor Donnie, I want you to join us. Irvin and I are working on a job, see? We're doing a project together and Pastor Donnie is there with us. Now, because I'm talking to Irvin, do you think I don't see Donnie there? I can see him there. And because I'm talking to Pastor Clark and we're engaged in a process, now, are you aware that Donnie's walking beside us? Do I have to tell you that to make you know? No, you're constantly aware that he's right there with us, right? I mean, this could go on for days. We could go to bed tonight and get up in the morning and start all over again. Nobody would have to tell me Pastor Donnie's right there. I would already know. What I'm talking about is a dimension in God where you live in a constant awareness that God is right there beside me. God is not asking us to take our minds off of the assignment. You're on your job. You're in your house. You're cooking supper. You're in your, working in your lawn. God's not asking us to not think about what we're doing. He's just saying, be aware that I'm right here with you. And I'm, I'm walking beside you. And when you reach that place, I want you to know something. It will transform your lives. Thank you, guys. You may be seated. I'm done. Communion of the Holy Spirit. Communion. The communion of the Holy Spirit. The vertical aspect of fellowship. Our relationship with God. And you know what? It's like this, and I close with a kingdom principle. Are you ready? Because if you ever get this, it will change your life. If you're ready, turn to your neighbor and say, I'm ready. How about you? Would you do it? What you are conscious of and what you are thinking about and your emotions are focused on is what you release around you. That went right over some of your heads. But if you're depressed, you know what you release? An aura of depression. 
If you're panicking, you know what you release? Panic all around you. If you're afraid, you release fear. The atmosphere gets saturated with it. If you are happy and you walk into a place, your happiness is contagious. It reaches out from you because you're releasing something. You know, that's where modern science has failed us. There are not five senses. There are at least six. We instinctively pick up on the atmosphere that other people project. I've got news for you. When you're focused on God, you're releasing an atmosphere of God all around you wherever you go. Do you know what we call that? That is called faith. Once you begin to release an atmosphere of God, anything can happen. Miracles can take place. You know what? You know what you ought to do before you and your family go in a mall or go in a restaurant or go about anything else? You ought to turn to them and you say, are you thinking about God right now? Because you're going to release God into the atmosphere when you go in the door of that restaurant or that shopping complex. And you're constantly releasing the atmosphere of the presence of God. That is why being in a conference or extended worship sessions so impacts you. It takes your face and it focuses them on him. You see God because at other times you're seeing everything else. Stand with me because I want to pray for you. Of all five things that I have mentioned, the one thing that I wish the most for you is that you might learn to manifest the presence of God. I wish that you could feel the nearness of His Spirit the way that I have learned to feel Him. I'm never anywhere. I'm in an airplane seat. He's sitting beside me. I look out the window and I see the runway going by and then the city below. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, you know, He's watching that with me. And you know what this does? It means that I can walk into any place. When I was young, I used to have to fast and pray, oh God, let me be anointed. You know what now? Just, just wind me up like that toy soldier and put me on any platform. I'm ready to go because I've got the anointed one with me right here. Amen. Something's going to happen. And I'm not saying that boastfully. So if you think that, just forgive me because I didn't mean it that way. But here's the practical benefit if you learn to do that. It means that he's always with you in whatever you're doing too. You're never alone. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. In the original Greek, it means I will never, no, never, never forsake you. He didn't just say I'll never. He said, I will never, no, never, never forsake you or leave you alone. Some of you have been through horrific ordeals. Some of you may be here today because you're visiting, because you came and you allowed us to minister to you during this crisis. But may I minister the greatest gift of all to you. May I minister Jesus to you.